Amen, amen. Just a few housekeeping uh, issues before we get started. Uh, listen, we're trying something brand new uh, for those of you who are, are techies for sure. But um, on your screen is a QR code. Um, and so our notes for today are going to be on version. And so you can scan this QR code from your guide or from the screen right now, and it'll take you to our notes from today. Today I'm going to talk about um, uh, another old story. We're in this series called Old School, and I'm going to wrap this up today. And um, this is a, a very, very familiar story. Uh, what I should have done is created a flannel board and 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 really taught this old school way. And like you know, move the you know, did your teacher ever kind of da, 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 you know move move the people across? Uh, that's what I should have done. We all know this story, whether you are following Jesus today or not. You know this story. Okay, and so we're going to be going to the book of Daniel and uh, talking about the Hebrew boys in the fiery furnace, and I'm going to try to pull some truth out of this for today. There is one big thing about biblical literacy that is very important to know, okay, and this sometimes becomes the elephant in the room that people are scared to address, but I, I will say it because it's very, very true, and that is that you and I are not part of the, of the audience that this was written for, okay? We, we are grafted in, and so you and I uh, were on the sidelines of this story, and we've been invited uh, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to now come into it. But we were not the original uh, part of the original audience, so there's this there's this big gap that we have to take care of every single weekend when we gather in His name and we open the Word is to look at it and go, there was definitely something going on then, and we try to understand the original context, but then we have to make this huge leap, thousands and thousands and thousands of years, depending on where we're teaching from, to land it right here. And, and, and then to say, well, I mean, how is this relevant to us years and years and years and years later? And that's always one of the big challenges of looking at these very, very old stories and then going, that culture was so far removed from who, who we are now, how do we even ap apply that? But we're, we're going to try to do that today, okay? So let me give you just a little bit of background on Daniel. The first six chapters are narrative. So it's basically uh, history in the form of storytelling, and it's very good. Um, it's very expressive. Uh, the language is very good, and so we get to see uh, these characters get built out and grow up right in front of us. Uh, the last six chapters are all prophecy about what's going to happen to these people, and when we come to the book of Daniel, um, the children of Israel are not in a good spot because they're in captivity. So the way this has worked, there's this king, Nebuchadnezzar, okay? How many of you are thankful your name isn't Nebuchadnezzar, okay? And so Nebuchadnezzar went in with his army, the Babylonians, they conquered Israel, and they decided instead of annihilating them to take them captive. So all the men, women, and children were taken in, and this process started 70 years of exile, now, if you study out the culture of Israel, Jerusalem, um, you will start to see very clearly that this was a very expressive, demonstrative culture and people. Uh, an, an, an instrument was part of daily life. There was a lot of singing, 
a lot of playing instruments, a lot of rejoicing, a lot of dancing, and it was all centered around faith. So as they followed God, they wrote songs about Him. They, they sang songs. They passed those songs on as a part of poetry. And um, they would, they would uh, sing and dance and celebrate and all of those great, exciting things. And the Bible tells us in Psalm that as, they were, as the author was reflecting upon this Babylonian exile, that they took their instruments and hung them in the poplar trees. That they were so upset about being in captivity and were so exhausted and weary by being overwhelmed by the Chaldean culture that they said, we don't even know who we are anymore. And so we're going to take our songs, our, our symbolism of rejoicing and dancing and celebrating before God, and we're just going to hang them on the trees. And then it said that they went and gathered around the willows and wept in remembrance of a life that they had previously. Okay, now I could stop right there and go the remainder of my time talking about this because there's some of you in this room, you have hung your instrument in the tree. Okay, and so life has done this or done that, and you don't like where you are, and so all of your rejoicing and expressiveness and, and singing of songs and dancing before the Lord and being excited about your faith is gone. Um, it's now just a routine to you, and you have hung your instrument in the tree and said, I don't even know what's going on anymore. Okay, this is what this whole book is about. An entire group of people who once had strong identity in Jehovah, now are saying, I don't even know what's going on. I don't know who I am. I don't know how to raise my kid. I don't know what to believe. Is God for me? Is he against me? I got no song in my heart. I'm, I'm not writing anything new. All I have is a memory of the way things used to be for me. And they're not. And something's broken. And we don't see a way out. Okay? I just want you to have the feel of what's going on during this, this entire book. All right? And so Daniel, I want to start in Daniel chapter 1. This is describing to us, Daniel basically covers four incredible leaders, Daniel and then the famous Hebrew boys Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which was actually their Chaldean names. We'll get into that in just a minute. But Daniel 1, let me read to you verse 3 and 4. This is from the New American Standard. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, so glad I'm not, my name isn't Ashpenaz either, Ashpenaz kind of has, has, has a redneck sound to it just a little bit. You know, it's like, Jed Ashpenaz, go clean up for dinner. You know, it's got, it's got, you, you can make it work, okay? So Ashpenaz is the chief of his officials to bring in, watch this, some of the sons of Israel, including some youths in whom there was no defect, good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, I've never met a teenager. <laughs> Come on, parents. That was your moment right then. Okay. Uh, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability for serving in the king's court. No wonder there was just three of them. And he ordered them to teach the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So what? They wanted was to find these group of young people, and they wanted to turn them. Okay, so they wanted to start teaching them 
the culture, the Babylonian culture, and then because they had credibility being that they were smart, they were good-looking, they were influential, they had wisdom, they had a natural gift for discernment, that they would release them to their own people and that they could slowly turn their own people toward this culture. It's very smart. And so they, 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 they pull them in. And the symbolism, you know, we all call this the story of the fiery furnace, but so let me just go ahead and throw that out there too. The symbolism for us, okay, that big gap I was talking about. Obviously, right now in our culture, we're not throwing people into fiery furnaces. But it, it would represent, okay, the pressure from culture. Like this, this pressure to uh, go with, with the flow, to go with what is popular, or to go with majority, to... To be a to, to let, let, let your mind be open to change so much so to the point that it completely changes who you are. Now, I'm not talking about being shaped. I'm talking about completely changing who you are. And so right out of the gate, I want to talk about two examples of how culture changes us, okay? And I'm, I'm going to be brief on this, but the first is the pressure to change our name. And name is such a point of identity. It was, it was even bigger then in, in, in this particular culture. The name meant everything. Uh, this would represent, you know, in, in our world, uh, names were far more important 200 years ago than they are right now. They had more identity to them, so keep that in mind as we talk about this. But in Daniel chapter 1, verse 7, so again at the beginning of this story, we see that this official changed their names. So he selected them. He saw that they were, they were good-looking. They were smart. They had gifts. Uh, these guys can help us turn this nation into where uh, they are part of our culture. How are we going to do that? And so they took their names. Okay, so Daniel, uh, the name Daniel means God is my judge. Okay, but then they changed that to Belteshazzar, which means protector of the king. And then you had Hananiah, which means God is gracious. And Hananiah's name was turned into Shadrach. And Shadrach meant under the command of Aku, which is their moon god. And then you had Mishael, and his name means who is like God. And this one is kind of like a slap in, in, in the face. So they take Mishael, who is like God, and they turn into Meshach, which means who is as Aku is. Okay, So you're no longer like God, you're like Aku. Again, the, the Amun God. And then finally, you had Azariah, and we don't know them by their Israelite name. We have studied them out, and we know them. A lot of us thought until two minutes ago that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was their Israelite names, but it's not. And so Abednego means slave of the god Nebo, which was, again, another popular god for them. So this was a radical attempt to unhitch them from their history, from their story, from their foundation, is to say, that chapter in your life is over. And now you are one of our leaders. 
you are going to help us. And they remained in leadership. Hey, keep in mind, a lot of times when we see this on a flannel graph board as kids, we think, you know, these guys went into Babylonian captivity, and then suddenly, you know, they had they came under pressure, and they said, I'm not bound down to that. I'm, I'm you know, I worship God. And then they're thrown into the fiery furnace, and then everything works out well for them. And we kind of walk away going, man, those guys sure were, were brave coming over. No, these guys are embedded into the leadership of this entire culture. And the Babylonian culture was massive. Okay, This is, is a very, very big deal. But here's the point. Culture can try to put a name on you that is very different from the name God has put upon you. And I think that, you know, when I think about this and I start putting together personal experiences and I start putting together stories that I've read and I start putting together uh, conversations that I've had, I start to see labels that we um, uh, have adopted into our lives. And one of the biggest one r right now, the biggest label, the biggest name change that we start to carry is I am alone. Okay? So we say, I am by myself. And we walk through life isolated and ostracized, and maybe we've got victories. You know, we always try to spin this and make it about the bad stuff, like something bad happened to me and I don't have anybody to lean into and talk to. And even though that's very important, why don't we swing the other way for just a minute? Like when we're living life alone, it's like something good happens and we got nobody to talk to, nobody to celebrate with. Nobody to high five, nobody to hug us, nobody to say, way to go. Nobody to pat us on the back and say, man, there's more to come. And so we have a lot of people walking through life saying, I'm by myself. I know I am. I am alone. Um, my parents weren't there for me. Uh, all of my friends have, have abandoned me. Everyone who ever told me that, that they love me has, has left me. Uh, and, and because of life's experiences, it's almost like these experiences are applauding how you feel about being by yourself. And then the second big one, even in the church, is God does not love me. And so we're going through uh, some, some big struggles with uh, right now, I just don't feel loved. And I'm going to be very clear with you. I've had these moments. I've had significant seasons in my life, even as an adult, where I was feeling like, you know, I mean, is, is, is he with me or not? Okay, let's just levelize the playing field. How many of you have ever felt this way? Just raise your hand, okay? Yeah. We have felt like I am by myself. And now I'm not only by myself physically, I'm by myself spiritually. And because of that, we find ourselves wavering in a lot of things. In the way we view the world, in the way we view our own lives, in the way we view purpose, in the way we view parenting, in the way we view marriage, in the way we even view the gathering of ourselves as believers. That if I'm really by myself, why do I need you in the first place? And if God doesn't love me, why do I even care what you think and why I should be around you? And these are all big, cultural, yet spiritual things that are happening. So there, uh, the second thing is that there is pressure to compromise our standards. Right? These men 
And this is a vast story, so you're going to have to read it for yourself to get everything I'm trying to glean out of this. But these men were offered food that they had never taken before, okay? They were offered meat and wine as part of the king's choice food. And as they are offered this, the reason their faith journey doesn't allow it is because God had stopped anybody from eating anything that had been offered to idols. He was like, I want you to separate yourself so much so that if they offer it to an idol, don't eat it. Because you don't need to be associated with that. So as they were, would offer, pour wine out across altars, across the city, and offer meat to these gods, uh, things that were signs of prosperity. I mean, not everybody in that day and age got, got a steak. So when they offered these things to these gods, he said, don't, don't even eat it. So Daniel steps in, and he decides, I've got to work with Ashpenaz here. I'm going to say his name as many times as I can. And so i, I got to make a deal with him. And he says, I, I tell you what, let me eat vegetables and water for 10 days. And just let us see if we can keep up with the pace of everyone who's eating from the king's menu. And if, if we're slacking, then you tell me. But if we're keeping up pace, then let's just let it ride, okay? And so Ashpenaz, do it in again. Ashpenaz says, um, I'm going to agree to that, and let's just see what, what happens. So watch this, Daniel 1.15. At the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better. And they were, I love this, fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. Now again, fatter here can translate to fitter. So they were more fit. And keep in mind, having a little bit of weight in this culture, again, meant wealth. It meant uh, prosperity. Because people who were thin, it was an obvious sign of going, you're not getting enough. So if somebody was walking around town just swole up, they were like, that person is rich. Okay? I mean, they've got access to all kinds of food. All right? And But two chapters later, let's start to drill down just a little bit. These men have grown out of the teenage years into their 30s, and now they are governors in Babylon. So they are overseeing, okay, keep in mind, systems, teams, committees. They have a seat at the table. They are making decisions. They could possibly be liaisons between the Chaldeans and the Israelite people. And, and so they, they are very important. And this is a pivotal moment uh, for this, this group. And you know how the story uh, falls out. So Nebuchadnezzar, very prideful. Uh, he alone could be a sermon series. But he does this crazy thing. He builds this statue of himself, and it is 90 feet tall by 9 feet wide, okay, which is very out of proportion. It kind of looks like Nebuchadnezzar skipped leg day. Okay, That's what it's going to look like. So he's really, really, really tall and really thin, and he adds a lot of pomp and circumstance to it. He calls out you know, his best orchestra, so to speak, and they all gather, and he's like, listen, here's the plan. He tells all the people, when you hear these guys drop the beat, you need to fall down and worship this golden statue. Even scholars believe this was not a wise thing for him to do. 
It was very prideful. He was telling his entire culture, again, which was very prominent, I am the most important person among you, and I want to be worshipped. And you know the story. So these men say, it's not going to happen. So they play the music. Everybody falls. Think about it. This is not a room like, like, like this one. This is thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people falling and worshiping. And you got three men in the middle of all that just standing. And they say, I, I'm, I'm not going to do it. I, 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 I can't do it. And it's almost like Nebuchadnezzar would say, listen, I mean, you are, have we not done good by you? If we not look at who you are in this culture, look at the clothes you got on. Look at the rings you're wearing. I mean, you're leading people that are not even your own people. You are making decisions that nobody else can make because you are loaded with discernment and wisdom. And you have been since you were a teenager. We vetted you. I'm not going to do it. I, 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 I can't bow down. And so thus far, these men have been a model for how to stand and how to lead and how to adapt and how to do all kinds of incredible things. But now they could be modeling how to suffer. And most of us will never, never, never face this kind of pressure that results in death. A lot of times we hear about that in the Western culture based upon people who have been missionaries in third world countries like like they had a moment where they said, listen, you've got to stop this or we're, we're going to kill you. And many missionaries have lost their lives over this pressure. But you and I will probably never do that. But you will experience pressure to compromise. Okay, So I want to give you three quick responses to culture. And then we're going to talk about the fiery furnace for just a second. Culture. Culture is something that right now, when we watch the, uh, the news, we are discouraged sometimes. We're disappointed. Um, we're in an, an uproar. We're, we, we look, uh, even now my generation even looks back and goes, hey, you know, the world wasn't like this 30 years ago. There's some of you here today that are 65 plus, and you go, I mean, you should have seen it when I was a kid. Or we, we read history. We look back in the late 1800s and we go, you know, this is the way, and it's, there's always been challenges. I'm not going to try to say that our world was ever like Little House on the Prairie. Okay, You guys know that was made up, right? And so, you know, we, we, we've always had challenges, but it seems like culturally, man, there's been this huge paradigm shift. Some of these things are, are very hard to swallow, and they're very hard to swallow as believers. We've even looked around at, at some churches taking these big leaps that are very, very far away from Scripture. And we scratch our heads and go, how, 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 did, how did we go from, from that to that? And there are always responses that we can take to culture. I think you're going to find yourself in one of these three descriptions. And I think that this part of this talk right right here can, can almost be a, a, a warning to us or a wake-up call. Okay? So the first one is this. 
we can oppose the culture. And that means that uh, that's us against the world. So as believers, we can make this shift and become jerks. And we can say that it's us against them. And we can start to build walls, and we can push everybody out that doesn't think the way we think, and you know doesn't do life the way we do life, and, and doesn't fit the mold. And we, we can do that. And, and, and there are groups who do that every day, every weekend. We'll preach from the perspective of this. If you don't get on board with this way of thinking, then this may not be the church for you. And so we, we can do that. We, can, we have been experts over the centuries of being uh, bricklayers. We can build some walls. And we can keep everybody out and do our best to keep the rest of everybody in. And, and we, we can oppose the world. Right now, though, what happens, and let, let this be a warning to us as believers, is we're tempted right now to do it passive-aggressively. And this is the part that makes me nauseous. Not as a pastor, it makes me nauseous as just a believer. But we're taking our arguments of theology or Jesus and we're putting it on Facebook and we're making very big, bold, brash statements in the name of the church and we're saying, you know, it's us against the world. Like, like we... We hate it. We can't be a part of it. We can't do this. We, and, and then they're taking scriptures like one-liners and completely twisting it to meet an agenda. So it looks right. You know, like when people look at, at your stuff, they're like, oh, this is, this is somebody. And man, you know, they're, they're talking about, you know, all these great things and all, these, all this stuff. And now they're using the scripture. I mean, that's got to be what, what that means, right? And they're making very divisive statements that repel people away from the love of Jesus. Now, here's where, where the balance came great. Jesus got right into the world, like right in it, because he loved it. And he started to hang out with the worst of the worst, so much so that if, if I, I do want to be careful here, but symbolically, he didn't hang out with this group. He went and hung out with people who wouldn't be in the building today. And the, those of us who are in the building are the ones who crucified him. And they're the ones who say, well, you didn't shake hands with me. You didn't talk to me. You didn't come by. You didn't raise my brother from the dead. And they begin to say, you know what? Give us the worst of the worst and pre give us Barabbas and take this guy and get him out of here. Church did it. And so we can become this people that opposes every bit of culture. And then the second thing is we can embrace culture totally and it becomes us for the world. And so now this is a group that's on the complete opposite end of, of against. Okay, so we got all this, I'm against, I'm against, I'm divisive, I'm, I'm on Facebook slamming everybody and everything. And then you got this group over here that says, let's just all hug. Okay, everybody in. Let's just hold hands. Let's sing Kumbaya. Okay, is that, that's great. Yeah, I don't care if that's sin or not. Come on in. And no, 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 come on in. We're not going to challenge you, okay, to, to, for, for change or for a work of the Holy Spirit. We're just going to begin to accept everything and affirm everything and bring aboard everything, and we can do that up to the point of discipleship. 
But what Jesus was saying was, you got to do the reach and then allow the Holy Spirit to transform you. And this is where the church got confused because we were like, I thought we're just supposed to love and accept and admonish and admire and just change our way of thinking that this is how they are and we're just going to love everybody. And and there's a part of that that's 100% true and a part of it that's 100% false. Because what we've done with the affirmation group is say, just bring in every bit of our culture, but we're never going to disciple, we're never going to invite the Holy Spirit in, we're never going to make the jump to being sanctified and becoming more like Jesus. You be you, and listen, the Lord's just going to love you. And we've stopped at the point of saying, I've got some things going on that i got to get rid of. So that I can have the best life that I can have. Okay? But then the, the, the third one is this. We can begin to inspire culture. I believe that this is what Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego were doing. They were inspiring a culture. They were taking their gifts and talents and their looks and their ability to network and make friends and honor people. They were taking all of that and they were becoming inspirational. But they still stood for something. It wasn't just like, a, hey, free for all, everybody. In. No, it was like, listen, this is what I stand for. And they brought a lot of class to that and honor to that, to that, that role. And we can do the same thing. Okay, I'm running out of time, so let's talk about the fiery furnace for just a minute. You know the whole story. He tried to strong arm them and said, all right, listen, if you're not going to go in, and I don't know why this even mattered, but he was like, we're going to heat this thing up even hotter. You know, I mean, if you threw me in, I caught on fire. Wouldn't, it wouldn't matter, right, if it's seven times hotter? He said, listen, we're, we're going to make this thing so hot. He was trying to just intimidate. If you don't do this, then. It, it, it's the big if, then. If you don't, then this will happen. If you don't, then this will happen. To try and modify their behavior. They still wouldn't bow. He gave them chance after chance to do it. And finally, to keep from looking like a fool, he had to throw three of his best in there. So the first thing here on these lessons from the fiery furnace is to know what you stand for. Daniel 1 and 8, I love this sentence. It says, Daniel made up his mind. Everybody say made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's food, so he sought permission that he might not defile himself. The, the King James Version uses this language. It says, but Daniel purposed in his heart. He looked at the inner core of himself and said, you're not going to do this. I know who I am. And he, and he takes this stand in the middle of a hard culture, keep in mind that at this point, the Israelites still numbered a million plus. And think about walking outside and seeing your people having hung possibly millions of instruments in the trees. This guy's saying, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to fall away. I'm not going to forget. I'm not going to bow. I'm not going to take a seat. Keep in mind, he was also saying, I'm not going to be ugly. 
I'm not going to start pointing fingers. I'm not going to blame my mom and dad. I'm not going to do I'm not going to do any of these things. I am going to take a stand for something because I love God. Daniel made up his mind. Hard to believe, but I was a youth pastor one time and some students know what they stand for. At this place, I, I know what I stand for. Some students only know what their parents stand for. So they're still in like this observation to modeling stage. So they're seeing their parents interact, and they say, I guess that's what I stand for. And then some students delay this growth, this development. I don't know what I believe. I'm going to wait. I'll catch it along, along the way. And so they, they make up their mind later in life about it. But we all know this, that either we will purpose in our heart or somebody else will try to define this for us. We've either got to get this in us to purpose in our heart that we will blank or we will not blank. We've got to do it. We get to put our will into motion and say, this is who I'm going to be. And I will take a stance on it. And so it doesn't matter how many people over here believe in this and whispering in, in my ear. I get to choose what I stand for. So it's less tempting to bow to culture if we know what, what we stand for. And I've told you this a million times, but I'm going to tell you again because it's so applicable to this story. But one of the reasons we as believers struggle is that we have overemphasized what we are against and have neglected what we are actually for. Now, I've told you this, and this is going to sound terrible on podcasts, but I left a denomination over this. Walked away. Because I felt like me. I'm not saying about that denomination, but for me, my whole identity had become I am going to be against that and that and that and that. And the older I got, the more it became, I'm going to stand against them and I'm going to stand against them and I'm going to stand against them. And there was so much less shield and a lot more sword, if you know what I'm talking about. I found that my faith started cutting people more rather than saying, let's just follow Jesus together. And if you don't believe exactly the way I believe, so be it. That if you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, born of a virgin, who went to the cross for your sin, who rose again on the third day, and who will come again to receive us unto Him. We are brothers and sisters. It doesn't matter anymore to me. It didn't, as, as, I, as I walked away emotionally and psychologically from that, it was just freedom. And I'm not knocking this denomination. They taught me a lot of good things. They taught me how to love God. And I want to honor that. But I had become something I couldn't live with anymore. And it was a guy on top of a wall taking shots at anybody that I felt like didn't exactly line up with my theology. And it became ugly and divisive 
and passive-aggressive and unhealthy. we got to know what, what we stand for, not just what we're against. Okay, second thing, really quick. we got to know how to stand out. Daniel 1.20 said, As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them, watch, ten times better than the ma- 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 magicians who were in this realm. Can you imagine your boss coming up to you and saying, you are ten times better than any employee we've ever had? Come on. I mean, you you would ask for money after that, wouldn't you? Right? I mean, Gene, what if somebody came up to you and said, you're ten, well, that that never happened. Let me find somebody else who's... Ten times better! That's amazing! How was that so? Because these guys were not enduring the world, they were inspiring it. Matthew chapter 5 says, you are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop. You cannot be hidden. And Daniel stuck out in a couple of ways. His professional competence, Daniel 6 and 3, so Daniel distinguished himself above all the other governors by how? His exceptional qualities. Listen, no matter what you do for a career, you have the chance every day to glorify God. Every day. This is not about Kevin doing it or New Life Church doing it. It's about you doing it. And when you see your career as a platform, you will suddenly realize that you have influence for the kingdom. This is what Daniel was doing. I love the, I love the quote by Abraham Lincoln. He says, whatever you are, be a good one. Just do it right. You can also do it through your personal character. Daniel chapter 3 and 17. Here they are about to go into the fiery furnace. And he says, if it be so, our God who we serve is able to deliver us. I love these three words. I've lived off of them for so long. And if you're going to put something in your pocket today, make it these three words. He says, but if not, let it be known. I still will not bow. I love that, man. God is able. He can do it. He can bring me through it. He can heal my kid. He can save a marriage. He can turn these finances. He can make my life whatever it needs to be. But if not, still going to serve Him. I'm not going anywhere. I won't bow. I won't turn. But if not, this is enormous faith. Right? But if not. And then last, you got to know who you're standing with. Daniel 3.25, the king says, Look, I see four men in there. The appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Some scholars believe it's an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. Some believe it was an angel. doesn't really matter who. It just matters that God shows up in this terrible time. He's fully present. That I know how to what I'm standing for. I know who I'm with. And in, in a day and a time when culture is right here, trying to tell us what's popular to believe and what, what we should let go of and how old-fashioned some things are. How Christians need to just change their mind and 
on and on and on and on. And we got to have some strength in this. So let me talk to your heart for a minute. Okay, some of you, again, you're in a place where you've, you've put your instrument in the, in the tree. And you're just kind of sitting, soaking in, in the circumstance. Like all that strength you once had, all that backbone, all that courage is, is yesteryear. Or maybe you're that person today, I mean, you're here, but you, honestly, you, you just don't know what to believe anymore. And you're not alone. What you need to hear is just the whisperings of the Holy Spirit. Affirming, reaffirming. The love of the Lord. The voice of the Lord like we talked about earlier. So I want you to bow your heads with me really quick today and I'm going to pray over you.